And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guests Deborah Biancotti, Margot Lanigan, and Scott Westerfeld on the Coot Street Podcast! And as he fades out into the stratosphere, I want to thank all of you for being with us. Uh, and I want to, let's explain very briefly why this particular combination of of authors, any one of which would be somebody who have been wanting to get on the podcast for a long time, why are you all here together? Um, and we know the answer to that. It has to do with something called zeros. Who wants to start off by explaining to me, explaining to us, explaining to our dozens of listeners, what zeros is? Shall we give you the narrative version, telling you how it all came together? That sounds excellent. Um, so the first thing, what zeros is? Shall we give you the narrative version, telling you how it all came together? That sounds excellent. Um, so the first thing I remember, this is Scott, the first thing I remember is, um, is I was having a conversation with Deb about mm. TV writing and how mm. TV writers are a lucky breed because they, well, lucky and unlucky, because they get to write in writer's rooms. And they get to collaborate on, you know, and, and sit around writers' rooms and, and sketch out a whole season of television and then disappear off into their own personal, you know, writing rooms and cubby holes to do one episode themselves. But at the same time, they, you know, they're often coming back and checking each other's work and, and having this frisson of interaction and, you know, and collaborating in a way that novelists mostly do not. Is that fair enough, Deb? And you had just. Is that fair enough, Deb? And you had just taken, Deb, you had just taken a sort of, uh, some sort of crash course workshop, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So this is Deb now. So um, I had just done a a workshop with AFTAS, the Australian Film, Television and Radio Writing School. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last day of that workshop was actually, last day of that workshop was actually uh, getting a whole bunch of strangers together, eight people around a table and saying, right, now you're a writer's room, write the next episode of Homeland. And it turned out to be such an invigorating day. I mean, it was just so intense. And, and we ended up working from like nine till five, I think, without any kind of break. Like we actually worked through lunch. We were just so excited. And what was great about it was the way that um, we kept one-upping each other. So someone would come in and say, well, you know, Carrie would do this in the next episode of Homeland. And someone would say, but what about if she did? And then they'd add on. It was like we were baiting each other to get sort of bigger and bigger stakes. And it was, it was just, yeah, it was incredibly inspiring and uh, energizing. So, uh, so, yeah, so just after that I found out that Scott had an interest in TV writing as well and, and had some friends who were doing it. So then I think somehow the crazy idea got born. Was that, Deb, your first real experience of collaborative writing? Uh, I've collaborated before, uh, most notably with uh, Sean Williams. We've written a uh, graphic novel together and I've done sort of other collaborative projects but but never in this sort of way where you're all working on the same story and people are coming in and basically we own different characters. So we would draft our characters' point of view chapters and then the one-upmanship would begin. (laughs) Margo, how did you get dragged into this? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, they sent me an email and said, we have have a project in mind you might be interested in. Come and meet us at this pub and let us play with beer and... And describe this interesting project to you. <laughs> and um, 
and I, I thought, now, can I, can I really fit this into my, my hectic day job and other writing schedule? And, mm-hmm. uh, and there were, there were, or there must have been several weeks where I was wondering whether it was really going to happen. And then finally, mm-hmm. I decided that I, that I, I had so much experience of of sitting alone with my projects, bashing my head against them and not getting anywhere that would be a refreshing change to be, to have other people in the room and to be working in a social way rather than in a solitary way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good good way to put it because we are, I mean, human beings, primates are are fairly social animals, like 75% of our brain is is given over to things like memorizing faces and you know understanding other people's micro expressions and listening to the tone of the voice to make sure that that other monkey isn't going to stab us or you know <laughs> and so so I think that like if you can activate that part of your brain as a creative person you're you're going to get more out of it and obviously you know us writers do that all the time but we do it with imaginary voices in our head quite often mm. and so I felt like it was a new experience I, I had collaborated before but only with artists you know, on a, on, a, on a graphic novel and on um, the illustrated books in Leviathan. And I'd really enjoyed that process and the way I got feedback from artists, but I thought it would be a, a much, in a way, a much braver thing to do to, to collaborate on the actual words rather than having them be my, you know, my sole, my sole responsibility and my sole, um, you know, and, 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 and me be the sole arbiter of what word goes where. But you're making... Oh, go ahead, Jonathan. I was just say, in terms of the mechanical process of collaboration, in some examples that I've heard of in the past, there's one senior writer or one writer who gets a final write through or whatever else. Is there an element of that here, or is it you bring in your own persp- own characters, whatever, weave it together, and it becomes the book that it is? No, that's the reason why Scott's name is so big on the cover. <laughs> 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 well, that's one of the reasons. So, because you do the final write-through, Scott? Yeah, we, or the we final did. edit? Yeah, I did. I did sort of nominate myself as showrunner, and uh, to, to use the TV terminology. <laughs> and so I do. Um, I do the yeah the the final sort of write-through and the and the smoothing of things and the and the justifying of things like the chronology, <laughs> which didn't necessarily work out in the first book particularly well. <laughs> but um, yeah, the chronology was a nightmare because of the three different you know the three different people with different possibly ideas of, of what time it was during the day. But, um, but yeah, I, I am the person who sort of, uh, you know, goes through and, 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 and files everything into the same kind of basic shape. So hopefully you can't tell that it's different writers. And it just feels more like different characters rather than different writers. Yeah. We should probably pause parenthetically here and, and mention in case our listeners are, are out frantically Googling and, uh, right now. That this novel is not out. That this series is not going to be out for a while. Am I correct? Yeah. It uh, the first book comes out September twenty ninth in the U S. and no doubt within a couple days either way in Britain and in um, Australia. In Australia. So so let me ask. I mean, it's obviously entirely logical as a group of Australians that you know if you're going to collaborate with anybody, the the place you would go to collaborate would be a pub. <laughs> I, 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 I get that. Uh, how did you make the leap, though, from you know, t- you know, going to TV workshops, talking about television, to collaborating to the, you know, the, the, the su- subject matter of the series, which is superheroes? Because the only person that, amongst your group that I'm aware of having written about superheroes before would be you, Deb. Yes, but actually the idea came from Scott. 
But he didn't he get it from reading your book, Bad Powers? Uh, I think that he had it before, but he's on the phone, so why don't we get him back? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I had had the ideas for these characters, and that was it was this was sort of the next thing I wanted to write. Well, not all of the characters, but for a couple of them. And this mm-hmm. was sort of the thing I wanted to write. And I knew, and I've always wanted to write a, an ensemble superpower thing. Because to me, super, you know, one person with superpowers is kind of less interesting. It's the way they fit together and interact that makes, mm-hmm. them, that makes superpowers interesting to me. I've always been a, a, a team, a, you know, a superhero team kind of reader is my favorite kind of, is one of my favorite kind mm-hmm. of comic narratives. Um, but, but, but the fact that Deb had written bad power you know was a um was one of the things that made me start talking to her about this and thinking about it as a, something i could collaborate with because i really liked what she had done with the superpowers and that and i knew that she was you know conversant in that world and had had thought about superpowers in in sort of new and weird ways which is one of the things i wanted to do whereas you didn't know whether i'd thought about superpowers at all <laughs> and, <laughs> and <No>. had you <laughs> <laughs> i was like a superpower newbie <laughs> so, so how did you find writing about this kind of stuff uh, margo um well it was challenging it was interesting i had a lot of very ordinary ideas <laughs> <laughs> um but you know I'm a, I'm a fantasy writer so i i guess i am being a bit disingenuous saying i'm a superpower newbie it's just um that kind of the the and this, and this isn't your standard lycra-clad um, mm. comic book superpower either. This is much more a kind of a blending of of uh, the YA that I'm used to handling and the fantasy that I'm used to handling. So these are these are characters for whom superpowers are are not an unalloyed benefit. So would it be a very alien reading experience for someone who's experienced only tender morsels in the, the Brides of Roll Rock Island? <laughs> it would be different, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would say it would be just a little bit different. Some, anybody who's coming expecting a uh, a, a straight-out Margot Lanigan novel is probably going to be a bit mystified. Would we also be disappointed if we were hoping for a Selkie superhero? <laughs> yes, you would. Oh. <laughs> Seal man. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> just... for volume four. <laughs> yeah. So well, I'm, I'm curious as to whether superpowers, uh, which it's an interesting word because it's a word that comes out of comics culture, but in a lot of these superpowers, before comics, we would have something called powers. Um, and it seems to me that this is something a little bit separate now from fantasy, a little bit separate from science fiction, a little bit. S- separate from the Marvel Universe. I know a lot of people have uh, experimented sometimes very enjoyably with alternative superpowers, superpowers that aren't that good. Justine Labellessier, you know, finding a parking space, is that a superpower? Um, There's, in Kelly Link's new book of stories, a superpower is she can levitate for a few inches at a time, but it doesn't really do her any good. Um, Is superpower fiction something separate from all the other genres we've been talking about and writing about? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. I mean, it, it's a weird... It, when you look at the history of it, it, it comes out of... Um, it, it's basically magic that has some sort of science fictional gloss on it. 
like you're from yeah. Krypton or you were bitten by a radioactive spider or inundated with gamma rays. It, it kind of comes out of the sort of the same tradition as uh, the nuclear testing monster movie with giant ants. Yeah. I think yeah. that's, its, that's its sort of like nascent space, historically speaking, is that kind of sense that, that science has gone too far and, and will now start changing us in ways that are fundamentally magical and, and make us into sort of not not gods, but sort of wrong gods, and you know, sort of dem weird demigods who don't understand their own power. I, I think it comes out of the nuclear, the nuclear panic, and that whole sense of of, of power being out of control is kind of the original, um, you know, it, it's at least you know, sort of fifties and sixties kind of science fictiony superpower origin stories come out of there. You know, the power is actually the title of a Frank Robinson novel from the 50s, which is exactly that. Um, I, I, never, I never could understand how uh, nuclear radiation would make people telepathic, but it was a given throughout much of the 50s that that was going to happen. <laughs> is there a challenge in coming up with powers and heroes that actually leaves you enough space left to have a story? that isn't going to actually completely negate any value of action because they can just solve any problem? <laughs> well, oh. these guys can't. I'm reminded of, a, of an old Mad comic, which was, you know, we used, to, we used to sit around and talk about our problems over coffee and cigarettes. Now coffee and cigarettes are our problems. <laughs> <laughs> and, and basically that's what these superpowers are. I mean, they're mostly trying to fix the things that happen because they have these powers. Yeah. And I think the other thing I like about Zeros is there, there isn't any conversation about whether these guys are somehow more evolved than the rest of humanity or somehow different. I mean, these guys are very, very much in the middle of what we think humanity is. Mm -hmm. is well, the, these are not... Uh, go ahead, Gary. Well, uh, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm still talking about the early history of science fiction, which bores everybody besides me, and I understand that, and I live with it. But when uh, one of the early superpower novels was A.E. Van Vogt's Slan, uh, which was actually published in Astounding. And they had to deal with these mutations who were uh, clearly, they were telepathic, they were clearly superior to humans. And there was a movement in the 40s and 50s uh, that used the slogan, fans are slans. The idea being that these outsiders, these people who have special powers, these people who can do things that normal people can't do, are really what these high school geeks, what we all thought we could be. Uh, mm. And is, is that part of the appeal of this, the outsider uh, gaining power? Uh, yeah, I mean, no. I... Well, wait, <laughs> go ahead, Deb. No. That was Margot. <laughs> I well, I don't think um, anybody reading the, the first volume of, uh, of Zeros is going, to, is going to be hanging out to be a zero. <laughs> Okay, that's... <laughs> but I think it will appeal to outsiders, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, they actually do, to a large extent, seem to be outsiders, except for Nate, maybe, who's the one with all the yeah. charisma who could draw people to him. Well, I mean, let me, let me give you one example. The, the, the power that I'd had in my head the longest when we started, to, just to get specific here, was this character named Ethan, but his sort of, his sort of code name, his, his superpower name is Scam. And the reason why is basically 
he can he he has something called the voice. And what the voice does is says whatever it needs to say to get what he wants in his you know in the situation. So if you point a gun in his head and say tell me why I shouldn't kill you right now. He will say because I know where the diamonds are buried and that will mean something to you. It won't mean anything to him because he because the voice doesn't like communicate directly with his brain. It just spits out what needs to be said. So his hmm. entire power is based on just vocalizations and 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 saying the right thing to get what he wants. And now the problem with the, one of the weaknesses of the voice is that it doesn't think very far ahead. <laughs> so if you know he he wants to he wants someone to come home with him, the voice might say, "Hey, I've got this great beach house on Ventura Avenue right next to that big palm tree and that's the place you've all, you know, that's the place of your heart, the home of your heart, that one palm tree." And you would be like, "Oh, great. I want to go there with you." And of course, he does not own a place there, so it's useless. But it's what he wanted at the moment. So there's a kind of a monkey's paw kind of, you know, kind of mm -hmm. fallibility. And the other problem with the voice is that he grew up, it started speaking before he did. So he is not actually very good at talking using his own words and his own voice. Um, you know, he's, he's a stumbler and a stutterer because he, he didn't have to learn. He, he sort of learned how to talk for himself after the voice was already getting him the stuff he wanted. So he's almost a, you know, English is almost his second language and he has no first language. Um, mm. So, so all the all of the powers, you know, sort of come along with these these disabilities that have, that emerge, hopefully naturally from the powers themselves. So that makes him an outsider because he's because he's not really in control of his own voice and his own words, which I think which I think a lot of people, especially a lot of teenagers, will actually uh, identify with is that that moment when you say something incredibly insulting or cutting or like you you cut down your parents without meaning to or without without just because you wanted to but you don't even know where those words came from. Yeah. And I assume that all of the characters to some degree are outsiders and uh, disadvantaged or slightly damaged almost by their powers and what results from them. Well, I mean, Nate, as, as Margot said, Nate is, um, is, is, is... His power is a kind of charisma and an ability to focus people's attention on him. So, so he... he he is balanced. I mean, he's damaged by his power in that he's a dick. Even the title, that's subtle. But he doesn't. But he doesn't so. mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get too detailed about characters, would anybody, or is it is it fair at this point, to ask uh, one of you to explain what sort of the basic premise of this series is going to be? Maybe Deb. Oh, Deb. So. Uh... <laughs> So the premise is this is a, a series set in a contemporary world, in a, in a made-up Cambria, California, with six teenagers who happen to have a power each. And um, as we've discussed, the powers aren't necessarily doing them good apart from Nate. Um, and they're kind of jerks most of the time. And uh, so in this series, one of them gets into trouble and he needs the help of the others and the others don't really want to help him because he's a bit of a jerk. And uh, the drama goes from there. And there's, there's car chases, I think, in the first one, and there's bank heists, and there's drug dealers. and It's, it's a terrible place, made up Cambria, California. <laughs> buildings, <laughs> buildings exploding. That's uh, true, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of, um, of uh, where you were talking about um, nu nuclear power having um, 
made everybody telepathic. In this case, it's more the the powers are all to do with connection and uh, communication. So it's almost like uh, the internet has got out of control, and all these teenagers uh, have these powers that relate to um, people's not uh, not just their own connections with other people, but people's connections in the world outside them, and they're mostly dependent on. Uh, there being six or more other people nearby to get full use of their powers. Yeah, so there are all sorts powers. of yeah. So there are all sorts of complications around assembling the right number of people, or getting away from people to disempower them, or that kind of thing. Right. They're, they're social superpowers, and they are crowdsourced to some extent superpowers. And we forgot to add the most important bit, which is that all of these guys were born in the year two thousand. Ah, what, what, what is the actual name of that generation? It's not millennials because millennials were born in 1980 or something. Post-millennials? Is there a name Sorry. for that group? Who knows, Sherry? Uh, yeah, let's... I hate all generational generalizations. <laughs> yeah. but. I, think there's general, I think there is confusion about the actual... Yeah. I, I think we want we want to like make a case for them being called zeros because they were born <laughs> in a year with lots of zeros. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's it. All of you have written individually about characters who are inarticulate, and that'll and, and, and very well, by the way. And I've always wondered how you how you do that. I mean, how do you how do you articulate the feelings and expressions and communication? Since you mentioned communication as a theme in the series, of someone who doesn't communicate very well, just as a writer, what kind of a challenge is that? It's obviously a challenge. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just think what I would do in that situation. <laughs> it clearly comes naturally to all of us. <laughs> Maybe, Gary, we need to end our questions by, by picking someone to start. Well, <laughs> Maybe Deb, this time. Oh, okay. All right. So, <laughs> what a great question, Gary. Um, <laughs> I, I would say that, um, I mean, I'm thinking of one story I wrote in particular ages ago called Number Three Raw Place, which was about a couple who weren't communicating. And I think the way I brought that out was that um, uh, I expressed it through action and inaction, what ah. was actually going on. Yeah. So, um, you know, honouring that old idea that character is action, I decided to actually show these inarticulate people attempting to connect. So she brings home pizza for dinner and he doesn't want to eat pizza that that kind of thing. But I yeah. think you're also relying on the, the, the fiction intelligence of your readership when you do something like that. Like you're using tropes that readers understand signify that these two people are not connecting. Uh -huh. That would be my answer. Margo? Um, well, I think there are some fairly... Um, there's a lot of close work you can do. There's a lot of uh, sentence fragmentation you can do. There's a lot of disjointed conversation that you can use. Um, there is also just a lot of internal monologue that you can use, where you can where you can just show, um, get inside your character's head and and watch them stewing and not saying anything while other things are going on around them. You know, hesitating before doing something and and, and seeing the situation you know, crash further out of their control while they refrain from acting. All kinds of things you can do. Hey, Scott? Who have I written who's inarticulate? I'm just trying to think. <laughs> I'm thinking some of the secondary 
characters in the um, alternate World War One series, the um, um, Leviathan. Some of the, yeah, the Leviathan series. Um, okay. Not 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 the girl, not the not the not the two main characters, but some of the secondary characters. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't want to. No, it's no. okay. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think there there are. I mean, to me, what makes one one of the primary things that makes YA YA is that it um, is that it focuses fairly closely in point of view, and that it's you know that it's it's about being in someone else. It's a, you know, books are machines for becoming other people. And that you want a very, very close connection between the reader and the character. And, um, and you know, in a way, all of, these, all of these characters are defined by their superpowers. You know, when we say that their superpowers are, are, are kind of sucky, what we mean is that they, they've shaped their lives. And they've and they've and they've made them grow up in ways that aren't normal and that aren't typical and that make them outsiders, and so, and so in a way they're struggling against the powers themselves. I mean, Scam always kind of want, you know, he relies on the voice, but he doesn't want to use it because it because it's a because it, it is kind of a monkey's paw. It's a kind of a tricky tool. So we're wow. constantly seeing him fighting against his own words, fighting against his own, you know, against lapsing into these behaviors. So in a way, they're their inarticulateness is born out of the fact that they um, that they're not certain who they are yet they're not certain uh, you know what they want to say yet um, you know and these are all kind of classic YA maneuvers yeah, yeah. so I, I think you know I think it's very much a part of a much part of, uh, of the genre and the tropes of the genre that your characters lack certainty about themselves in a way that adults have either you know they might wish they were something else, but they've kind of given up on it. Mm. Whereas, you know, the, a teenager can be the biggest asshole in the world, and you know, and, and you still have some hope that they might change. <laughs> <laughs> Where's that other person you've given up on? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the adults, yeah. Is, is that because teenagers, I mean, I, I assume it, it has something to do with the fact that teenagers feel inarticulate, that they have feelings, they can't talk to their parents, they can talk to only one or two friends maybe, and uh, that's, I mean, I'm just thinking of myself as being a teenager, I was like terrified of being either inarticulate or articulate in the wrong way, mm. like I can talk to other geeks, but not to other people in high school. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is, it's a, it is the, uh, one of the, the problems of, of being a kid is that you have more intense feelings that everybody than than anyone else, just hormonally and emotionally speaking, and you and yet you don't have as many of the tools for for dealing with your problems and for articulating your problems and processing your emotions. Mm. True. Which I think is why the the social aspect of the zero's powers is so perfect for teen readers and and for YA as a mm. category. I think that whole sort of you know how you feel in a group and how you feel one on one and 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 dealing with yourself and others is a from my you know very faded memory of teenage years although i've tried to to bury those those <laughs> memories quite deep <laughs> that seemed to be quite an obsession of mine at the time yeah i'm curious deb as as the only one who's really written a great deal about superheroes before that i'm aware of for our listeners can you tell us a little bit about bad power and how it does or doesn't relate to 
zeros? Uh, well, Bad Pal was um, uh, a book of short stories I wrote for 12th Planet Press with Elisa Krasnstein. Um, and I wrote five stories centered sort of roughly in the same world where people had powers, but they weren't necessarily heroes. Um, and so it was, it was adults this time, but it was a similar sort of a, a idea in that uh, they were people who happened to have a particular ability that no one else had, but they were still jerks. Um, and their lives were pretty miserable. So um, it was a contemporary story with a sort of a police procedural kind of setting. There's a, a police detective who features in most of the stories. Um, and it was set in, in Sydney because I knew it. So in a way I used a kind of a crime writing um, approach, but I discussed superpowers. And so each story focused on a different person in this particular environment. So it was kind of... It was kind of more gruesome and nasty than uh, than Zero. Zero's is probably a lot more fun. <laughs> um, Zero's is haplessness more than yeah. Yeah. Oh look, yeah. yeah. Oh look, Volume Two is getting pretty gruesome. <laughs> <laughs> We're going down the gruesome road, I think. <laughs> They'll all come together in Book Three. <laughs> uh, and I know Deb that you were asked about writing a bad power novel. But that never really happened, did it? Oh, I don't know how people got that into their heads. But uh, <laughs> um, I, look, I did sit down at one point and think, oh, yeah, I could totally write a bad power novel and this is what would happen. And I laid out a kind of a, a, um, a premise and a, and a narrative for it. So, you know, I still, I still could write that book one day. It's not necessarily off the cards. But um, it didn't happen at the time because I was busy writing something else. So, uh, so really, it was just timing more than anything that meant that there wasn't a bad power novel. So, so for you, in terms of a writing career, because for most of us, you know, we're familiar with the book of endings and the short stories that came before it, and then bad power happens, mm. and here we are four years later. <laughs> yes, it is four years later. Yes. <laughs> well, a lot of stuff has happened in those four years, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not asking for a personal biography, but what I'm thinking is... How did you, other than knowing Scott and Margot, how did you come to be writing YA? And for you, how different was it? Uh, well, I really came to YA because Scott said, "Do you want to write this YA story?" And it sounded really cool. So, <laughs> uh, so that was really my intro. I, I didn't sort of make a. She never would have got here if she hadn't been dragged in screaming and kicking. I didn't scream or kick. I just went, that sounds really cool. <laughs> but, but it was hard for me to actually get my thinking back to teen thinking because I've spent my entire life avoiding thinking about my teenage years. And so then I had to sit down and actually, you know, work out what teenagers thought these days and, and what I thought and how I could connect those things. So uh, I found it really challenging at the beginning to try and actually write in a teen voice, but now I can't seem to switch it off, so I might be screwed. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes I think when you haven't rehearsed memories, they sort of stay more pure in a way. Oh, yeah. My, like my pure memories are re-emerging <laughs> with a horrible frequency. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, but if you haven't gone over and over them and, and, and applied pop psychology to them numerous times in various layers, then perhaps you do get a, a truer path to them. That's true. I, wonder. I want to go back to that question earlier about how 
how gruesome Volume Two gets. And I have never, it's going to be months before any of us get to see Volume One, and now I find out. Okay, the gruesome stuff is in Volume Two. <laughs> I can't wait. But Fargo, you you were a number of people uh, thought that you raised the bar on gruesomeness and YA fiction with tender morsels which we should parenthetically note won a World Fantasy Award. Is there any distinction between YA and adult fiction in terms of that kind of content material anymore? Um, well, there is, but I think it exists in so many different people's minds and so many different organizations' minds and so many YA readers' minds that it's almost meaningless to try and... Uh, define it terribly closely. Fair enough. You ducked that question. No, no, honestly, there are, you know, there are, there are, there are 12-year-olds who can take on tender morsels and do not have a problem with it. Honestly, do not have a problem with it and their parents don't have a problem with it. And mm -hmm. there are, you know, um, women my age and, and men and older who are, who, who just will never go near it because that's just not their taste. They just don't like to go into those areas and explore mm -hmm. them. They just feel too uncomfortable. And that's the case with a lot of um, a lot of fiction. A lot, you know, there's a lot of violent and unpleasant fiction out there and, and it has different readers and it's not really about whether they're young adults or adults. It's about the kind of reading that they like to do, the kind of reading experience they like to have. Well, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, just I mean, just to go back to my earlier point about um, about the, the 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 changeableness of teenagers, I feel like the one thing that doesn't make sense in a YA novel is a kind of hopelessness. Like things can be horrible, but yeah. they can't be hopeless. Yes, adults adults yeah. are all about hopelessness and love it and, and identify with it. But I don't. But I think even you know even teenagers, terrible circumstances, still have enough of their life ahead of them that they feel possibly, you know, that, that hopelessness doesn't make sense, or at least I wouldn't write a YA novel mm. that was fundamentally about being hopeless. So there needs to be at least a possibility of something good happening. Yeah. Yeah. Which, Which is why we have so little YA from Samuel Beckett and Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> 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 that would be fun. And like, I guess the other thing, I mean, to me as a characteristic of YA fiction is that the problems of the story must be solved by the the you know the protagonist the teen protagonist and not by other external authorities in the stories. Mm. Otherwise, it seems that all you're doing is reinforcing a adult mentality of storytelling, if you like. Well, I certainly agree with that. I mean, mostly I think the protagonists of a story should solve their own well, problems. Sure, mm. but but definitely, Ed, it is you're it is a it is a, a common thing of the person trying to write YA who doesn't fundamentally know how to do it is that they have the parents come and fix things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is not happening here at all. Definitely. <laughs> but one of the things that strikes me as interesting about YA in our field, and I've, we've talked about this in the podcast before, is that um, in, in, the, in the general region of fantasy and science fiction, adult readers will pick up... Um, a YA novel by any of the three of you because they figure it's going to be an interesting fantasy or, or, or science fiction story. And in the YA world, you have far fewer readers who will, uh, who will avoid a fantasy or science fiction story simply because it's genre. In other words, there are two kinds of snobbery 
that don't exist with the intersection of YA and science fiction and fantasy. The, sci yeah. the, the snobbery against science fiction and fantasy in one group of readers and the snobbery against YA in another group of readers. And I, I, I've always suspected this, but now I can ask, uh, I can actually ask you, uh, at least Scott, with your, your many popular series of young adult novels, you must get a lot of feedback from adult readers uh, who think these are just pretty good science fiction stories or pretty good fantasy stories. Oh yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, and well, and conversely, you know, teenagers haven't really specialized as much as adults generally. Mm -hmm. You know, they 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 you know they haven't decided to read only John Grisham novels, which many adults do. They you know they, when they, you know when a when a twelve year old goes to a bookstore, speaking even younger, you know they'll get like a book about sharks and a realistic problem novel and a biography about a movie star and uh, you know and a space opera. They really don't have that sort of weird specialization of reading that adults later later get, um, and uh, yeah, and I think science fiction readers. I, I think that a lot of for a lot of people who like science fiction, especially of my vintage, mm -hmm. the the science fiction section of the bookstore was the YA section. Yeah, it was, it was the place where they felt yeah. welcomed, where the where the stories were kind of optimistic and and full of story and action, and therefore, you know, it, it, it's you know, there's uh, they grew up on Heinlein juveniles or Heinlein books that were juvenile in other ways, and <laughs> they, they didn't really, and they you know, and I think that that genre, you know, there's a reason why it's associated. What, what's the old saying? The 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 golden age of science fiction is thirteen. Mm. Yeah. So I think yeah, yeah. So I think that those. That the two fields weren't that separate that long ago. Yeah. I think that's true. I think if you looked at most science uh, most science fiction novels prior to 1960, they could be YA novels. Uh, most of Arthur Clarke would fit that. Most of Heinlein, all of Asimov would fit it. Uh, and to some extent, I think that's uh, always been an advantage that the, the, the that the field had. There's a point, and again, all of you know more about younger readers than I do. Uh, but it seems to me there's a point at which readers learn to understand what it is they don't read. In other words, what you were saying, Scott, at some point, readers say, at some point in your growing up, you realize, okay, I don't read science fiction, or I don't read mysteries, or I don't, uh, I don't read this anymore. And before that age, before you hit that age, you'll read anything and enjoy it. I, I totally agree, yeah. Mm. Yeah, shades of the prison house begin to close. Exactly. <laughs> I'm actually a little curious, Scott, you know, in the context of this conversation, how have your young adult readers responded to your earlier novels like Polymorph and The Risen Empire? Uh, Risen Empire is the easiest one to get and, and probably um, and, and certainly the one that's most often read by my younger readers. But yeah, the other ones, despite the fact that they're very graphic and in places and very weird and have the kinds of content that, that Margot was, you know, you asked Margot mm -hmm. about earlier. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're totally, I just had somebody tweeting up a storm about fine prey. Yeah. And, and was really enjoying it and like saying, oh, great. She's, <laughs> she's a lesbian horse rider with, and a recreational drug user. This is my kind of story. <laughs> but doesn't that reinforce one of the points that I find in discussion of YA sometimes gets lost? And that is, you know, we talk about, you know, is some YA too graphic? Is it this or is it that? But the truth is that 
for a lot of young adult readers, and this is what it was like when I was growing up, you don't read young adult, you read stuff. I mean, you were saying this a minute ago. And this idea of there being a young adult market or persona is external to some degree to the readers themselves. It's not the way they see themselves reading. Absolutely. And I think that there's an awful lot um, uh, talked about young adult literature that is never brought to bear on on young adult TV consumption or movie watching. It's mm -hmm. just, it just seems to me that um, because uh, books in general, uh, it's easier to police them, um, that, that all these, these arguments about what's suitable and, uh, and where we should be drawing lines and steering uh, young people is, is, is it's just not justified. Because it always seems to me there's so much talk around YA about what you should or shouldn't write, irrespective of whether you mm. pay any attention to it all, mm. and what young readers should or shouldn't read, irrespective of whether they pay any attention to it at all. There's mm. all this discussion, this edit editing, moralizing, controlling, mm. that is absolutely irrelevant to the actual readers themselves, and in many ways to the work that's written. Oh, yeah, and it, sh it shouldn't be even anywhere near your head if you're actually trying to to write a story. So, I mean, do you need to forget, uh, where by young adult, I don't mean readers, I mean the discussion around young adult, young adult, young adult publishing, everything else. To some extent, when you're writing for young adults, do you need to forget young adult? Yes, absolutely. You need to be, yeah. right. you need to be writing just that story. And, yep. it, you know, you just don't know what it's going to morph into. You don't, you don't know what disgusting places it's going to take you. And, well, that's uh, only you, Lanigan, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. you need, well, sometimes you do hit a point when you're writing a story where you think, well, this can go here and, or this can go word on there. And do I really want to take it down that path and, you know, do that, do that dark stuff again or do I want to keep it to this audience? And, you know, exactly, exactly what story am I trying to tell here? So you might it might be one of the one of the gates that you pass through on the way through to writing the story, but you can't sit there hovering at that gate for too long, or you get too self-conscious and lose the germ of what made the story good. I'm, I'm always sad how. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I'm always kind of annoyed at the way that YA gets defined negatively, negatively in the sense of the, what are the things you can't do. Mm. I mean, to me, it is what makes genres interesting are the things that you can do that you can't do anywhere else. Mm. And, and I feel like, you know, teenagers as readers are great because they're, con they're currently in the act of language, ex you know, acquisition. Mm. They, they write more poetry than adults. They memorize more song lyrics. They make up more nicknames and more slang. They study more foreign languages. Like, I've, I've, I've asked all these questions in a room full of adults and teenagers, and the teenagers win every category that has to do with language production, you know, semiotic production, language acquisition. They're doing all that stuff right now. They're the ones in a French class who then, you know, memorize a bunch of song lyrics and write poetry on the weekend. Adults aren't doing that as much. So when you mm -hmm. write for that kind of group, it means that you can go crazy with more kinds of, slang and neologisms and and you know and and sort of general play yeah language play in a way that i think adults yeah. are very sniffy about adults like oh you can't use any verbs of utterance other than the said i, I was i learned that in you know in graduate school <laughs> I, I won't forgive you if you do it like adults are all into this like incredibly 
dense verbal, you know, this dense thicket of verbal hygiene. Whereas to me, teenagers are really into language production and language play. And that's why, you know, that to me is one of the characteristics of the genre. And, and it's, a, it's a reason why science fiction works very well in the genre too, is because you can blurt out all kinds of crazy new words and the teenagers will be like, yeah, I'm learning new words. I do that all, you know, I do that all the time anyway. Yeah, which is, which is where grokking came from in 1961, because everybody was reading Stranger in a Strange Land when they were a teenager. Exactly. Or, or Watershed. One of the things that fascinates me about YA is that you, don't, you can't possibly know when you're not writing it, because in the last 20 or 30 years, the number of novels that have been repurposed as YA novels, from, uh, from Catcher in the Rye to To Kill a Mockingbird to Flowers for Algernon and probably most notably recently Ender's Game, were never YA novels to begin with. Uh, but now they've sort of been sucked into that black hole of YA-dom, and, <laughs> and nobody who's an adult thinks they have to read them anymore. <laughs> so, um, which goes back to the Risen Empire, Scott, I mean, that, which a lot of us would like to see more space operas like that, but, you know, if, if your reputation is in YA, that sort of default becomes a YA novel, doesn't it? Um, I mean, that's an interesting question. I don't know if I would... Uh, I mean, certainly Fine Prey is probably the yeah. closest I've written to a YA novel. I mean, she's in school. She's, she's, you know, exploring her sexuality. And, like, that. it is a YA novel. And probably, you know, I, I, could, I could, with very few changes, release it again as a, as a YA novel. And I think, you know, anything about it, anything with a young protagonist, fundamentally, yeah, if you've done it right, unless you've done it from the point of view of, you know, looking back on your teenage years from a distant future, if you're in close POV of a teenager, you're, you're, you've got to be writing YA or you're doing it wrong. And that's pretty much why, why um, Tender Morsels was published as YA in so many places, I think, because I only had a reputation of writing, for writing YA. And right. it just got put in the same box because it was simpler and it picked up whatever small public I had managed to gain by that time. How, how do you think it affected the way that book was received to see it placed and marketed as YA? Um, well, it was pretty good um, in terms of the uh, outrage that it generated. You know, an outrage is always a, quite a good selling tool particularly in the um, UK. I had, you know, double-page spreads in the Daily Mail being outraged about the filth I was writing. <laughs> Can't <laughs> complain about that. And, and if I remember what it's like to be a te teenager, no, nothing could be more attractive than people going on about the filth that you're writing. <laughs> I know, give it a go. Can I take this? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I wonder, Margo, when your short story collection started making such a splash in the United States, did you find readers discovering you as an adult and going back and finding the earlier YA novels? Not very much, no. Okay. <clears throat> One or two people did, yeah. Tim Wynne-Jones did over at Vermont. But um, no, not really. Because they were still, uh, you know, set in Australia and only published in Australia. And okay. slightly slightly before e-books. They're, they're both out as e-books, those two Pretty realist YA books. There's so basically, they were hard to find. Yeah. Okay. There's a question I'm curious to ask all of you, and maybe starting with, say, Deb and going around. Um, you know, you mentioned, Margaret mentioned Australia. I mean, is it hard, do you think, to get people outside of our country interested in reading stories set 
in and around Australia? Uh, my impression is yes. I mean, I remember seeing Michael Robotham, who's an Australian crime writer, talk about his career. And he, I think, was a journalist in London for a while. And, and consequently, he sets a lot of his books in London because as a journalist, he explored it quite thoroughly. And he, at one point, decided to write a book set in Australia, which for crime writing, you think would be quite pertinent because crime writing is all about place and specificity. Um, but he said that basically that book sell, sold far, far less than any of his books set in London, even though he writes his books set in London from Australia. So, uh, yeah, my impression, I'm sad to say, is that, yeah, people are, you know, in terms of sheer numbers, there's less number of people outside Australia who are interested in reading Australian fiction. But I will also say I've got a friend who's a New Zealand writer and she says, oh, you think you've got it bad? <laughs> <laughs> The guy on Mars did pretty well. Well, there you go. That's one. <laughs> okay, it's true. <laughs> just speaking as an outsider, I mean, just speaking as an American, which I am born as, um, the, sense, the sense I've had, uh, and this goes back before Jonathan and I were friends and doing the podcast and I learned a lot more about Australian culture. Prior to that, the sense was that if you were Australian and your name, were, your name was Peter, you were okay. You had to be Peter Carey or Peter Weir. <laughs> yeah, that'd be about right. But even Peter, even Peter Weir needed Richard Chamberlain. In it, one of the it's also, I, I can't think, you know, off the top of my head, of a lot of major contemporary YA that's set in and around Australia. And when I think about older, I mean, like, when I think about stuff like, say, Patricia Wrightson, which never seems to have translated outside the country that well. Or if I think about books that were considered classics when I was growing up here in Australia, like My Brother Jack or Merry Go Round on the Sea or whatever else, mm. those aren't the kind of stories that seem to resonate for whatever reason. And it seems odd to me because it seems to me that the landscape, the culture, the geography, the geopolitical placement of the country should, in theory, potentially make it really interesting, particularly these days. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that actually Australian YA does punch it pretty far above its weight in terms of, um, I mean, you know, The Book Thief uh, was on the bestseller list and for a long time. Um, John Marsden books, you've got, I mean, Margot's well-known, Justine's well, you know, a lot of no, those but, but I'm not talking about writings, I'm talking about settings yeah. and culture. Yeah. Because there's yeah. no, I mean, there's no doubt you're right. I mean, I could name half a dozen or more extremely successful, very, very talented writers writing young adult fiction who come from Australia. Mm. But I can't, can't yeah. Um, Jackie Moriarty. Okay. Uh, hers uh, all set in Australia? I think so. Well, the recent one, the recent. Day. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Hello. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, you forgot Peter Temple, by the way. I've That's never heard of yeah. Peter Temple. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm writer. So, um, so is it some of that, I mean, it, you know, odd exceptions aside, is it partly that so much of publishing itself is North American? rather than reader interested, it's publisher's perception of reader's interest. I think it's a combination, you know. I think there are, I, I know when I went to Clarion West and I was, you know, writing a story a week and putting it out to the workshop, there was, there was this discomfort coming back which said, I'm not sure whether the weird words you're using are just weird words or whether they're Australianisms. So there's this kind of, there is a 
I basically don't look at your country because it's not terribly significant in my life. I also feel mm. guilty because I'm not not being properly worldly about this and make um, and 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 sitting here and listening to these odd words each time I hit one I'm I'm hit with this little complex of of emotions which I'd really rather not thanks you know <laughs> was the general general thing that was not being said you know and I think that that I I I made the cold-blooded decision to to concentrate on fantasy after I'd put out those two YA goody realist books set in Australia because they came out they got good reviews they got um, shortlisted for prizes in Australia and they and then they just died and I thought I I want to actually write bigger than this I want to travel mm-hmm. further with this I want to have a a bigger palette than this. And it's just not going to happen if I concentrate on these kinds of stories. Mm. Fair enough. On- well, we did, we did set zeros in the US, and I think that was a fairly conscious decision. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, obviously there were a few conscious decisions running into uh, zeros that it would be YA, obviously. I mean, <clears throat> let's start. Why, because why, we haven't really touched it deliberately, why YA? Because it was superheroes? Because it was teens? Or because of what you're familiar with writing, or because it'd be the most fun. Yeah, that's valid. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 then, I, and I wanted, and I did want the idea that you know these were people whose points of view were defined by their powers. I mean, the very language of you know of of each of these characters is defined by their power. Like with like in the case of Scam, he's talking, but he's not actually talking. So what the word said means changes when he's the point of view character. Yeah. So, so, so like, but I wanted these characters to be defined by their points of view and by their power, but at the same time to still have some, some idea that they might grow out of these things or they might, you know, have another dimension inside them that we haven't reached yet because they are still young and still forming themselves. So I didn't want them to be hopeless, hopelessly destroyed by their powers. I'm curious as well, is there anything uh, about the Zero's novels that in feel at least harks back maybe to the Midnighters books, which feel to me like they sound I'm like sorry. they some feel to me like they sound I'm like sorry. they some. You're breaking up a uh, bit there, Jonathan. So, sorry. Mm. Is there anything in the Zeros books, Scott, that to some degree harks back to the feel of the Midnighters books? Because they sound like they've got something in common. Yeah, they do a little bit. Midnighters was, I wanted there to be, I, I started Midnighters right after Columbine, the shootings at Columbine. Mm. And I kind of wanted to write a novel where the goth kids at high school were um, were the heroes, and that their gothness was explained and made sense, and that they knew things that the rest of us didn't know. Because I think that's what, the way you feel when you're a goth. And uh, so, so there is a little bit of that sense and the outsideriness of the powers, um, and also you know that was my first book with a sort of super powered team. Mm. Um, so I think I was you know. Uh, you know, it's a little bit like Midnight's. Okay. Sorry. What about the movie Chronicles? Is it Chronicle? I think that's the one about a group of high school kids with superpowers. Have I got the right? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I, I do know what yeah. you're talking about. Okay, good. Uh, and it struck me that that was, um, apart from the fact that I'm really annoyed by this whole false documentary thing. Uh, it seemed to me to be getting at some of the issues you're talking about. Yeah, I liked Chronicle quite a bit. Um, I think we were pretty much into Zeros before it came out, or at least before I saw it. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be a direct inspiration. And I, and I guess I'm guessing from the silence that Margot and 
have, have actually... I have no, I've seen it. And I quite I quite liked it, but I think that um, you know it's sort of messed with that idea that a power will make you evil. You know, power yeah. corrupts kind of thing. They yeah. had one character who who becomes corrupted by his power in in a kind of a predictable sort of way, and I don't think that that's what we've done with our powers. I think that the the because it's a, because our powers are socially based powers, and Chronicle used the whole alien technology approach. Right. Exactly. Um, that the conclusions that we reach based on what would you do if you had a power and this was the kind of power you had, this social power, I think are probably quite different. But um, I, I enjoy Chronicle. So let me just ask, because we are coming towards the end of our hour, which has been very interesting and enjoyable. Um, with Zeros coming out in September, I guess what you're all going to be in North America promoting the book around that kind of a time. Mm-hmm. Will are the books going to come out every year from there on, or what's the, you know, what can readers expect when it comes to zeros and its and the rest of the trilogy? It's yes, every fall. Yeah. Okay. And and you're what sort of most of the way through the the second book at the moment, or you're you're fighting bloodily with it as we speak? Mm-hmm. Yeah, bloody fighting. Well, yeah, it's it's two thirds first drafted. Hmm. Okay. We um, that would be Margot and Deb's thirds. Yeah, <laughs> I was being I was being delicate there. I wasn't naming names. That was, um, but yes, <laughs> we 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 go off. Part of the process is that we go off to something we call plot camp. Yeah. Um. Or or plot comp, using mm. the German and um, <laughs> and we we outline together. We outline completely together in a room like a writer's room. And, and we get uh, so we have an entire outline. We went off to the Blue Mountains and stayed at the Lillianfels and had a lovely time, and mm. we were there for about four days outlining. And then we, you know, because we each know which two characters we write, all the chapters get split up, and then we're all working on them separately at the moment. And we do have lots of first draft, and you know, and I'm starting to, and I sort of go through it in order and and slot my chapters in because I'm mm. trying to like maybe catch the things that have gotten missed or the, 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 the things that I, places I feel like the reader might be a little confused, I try to drop them into my chapters. So that's why I do mine last. That okay. and, and later. Oh, you had a reason. I just thought you were lazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's why. I, I actually why. wondered because it sounds as though, in effect, it's, it, it's like sort of acrobats on a high trapeze, you know, sort of, you've got this outline, yeah. but you're, you, know, you start from nowhere at the beginning of your chapter, knowing someone before you're supposed to have done X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. and then you throw your the end of yours off into somewhere else, and then it's, you know, it gets picked up, but not when you're writing. That must be quite odd and disconcerting to deal with oh it's not odd and disconcerting it's it's terrific (laughs) 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 the lack of responsibility is wonderful i have to tell you (laughs) it sounds great you're all having a lot of fun Um, yeah uh, and 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 that immediately makes me want to join in the fun but between now and september do any of the three of you have something uh appearing that we should know about uh, I've got a novella coming out with PS Publishing. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking forward to that one. I think Margot's got... <laughs> and I've got something cool. coming out with from, from PS Publishing. It's a collection of more adult short stories. It's going to be called Phantom Limbs. I'm not quite sure when it's coming out, but I'm pretty sure it'll be before Zeros. Yeah, I'm not sure when mine's coming out either, but it's called Waking <laughs> in Winter, and it's a novella. 
Sorry, what's yours called, Deb? <laughs> Waking in winter. Waking, Waking in, winter. in winter. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. And I have a, a graphic novel that doesn't come out till next year, but it will. Um, it's with First Second, and they like to put their stuff online first. Yeah. So it will be a web comic first, oh, and brilliant. then we'll turn into a graphic novel later. Very and cool. it's from First Second, and it's called Spill Zone. Spill Zone. Okay. And that will Spill. probably start like in summer. That will that will be online, and we'll whack down thirty pages, and then do like <laughs> six pages a week until like, we get up to like two hundred or so, whatever, however many pages there are, and and then it'll be published as a book. Brilliant, excellent. And I guess we'll start seeing you know advanced reader copies of um, of zeros coming out sometime around July or August, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sooner than that, BEA. BEA, okay. So so late late May late or May. early you know mid May. Right, magic. Where magic. is BEA this year? New York, forever now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask, I mean, is there, I mean, I know, Scott, that you tend to you know, split your year between you know, Sydney and New York. Does that impact on the, on the writing of, of uh, Zeros? Or because you've plotted it out, are you sort of immune from the geographical oddities of, of the year? Well, in a funny way, the, first, the, the sort of meeting in a pub weekly is not a, a big feature of book two. hasn't really been a big feature of book two. It, like for, uh. the first, for the first three or four months, we were just like talking about superpowers and drinking beer. Mm. And, and <laughs> occasionally we would write like, a, here's, here's this character riding a bicycle, or here's this character in a classroom using his power to, to mess with the teacher. And we would write these little things that were sort of, which, are, which will make great extra content, but which were not part of any real narrative. So we were playing around for a long time, and that involved a lot of face-to-face. But now I think I think less so. I mean, maybe we'll just maybe we'll just plot while we tour, <laughs> <laughs> like a, like bands who record you know their next album, write their next album while they're on tour for this one. Yes, because we're having the debut the debut album that has all of the ideas and all the songs you've been working on for the last fifteen years pushed into it, and now you're yeah. going to knock knock one out on the road. <laughs> yeah. Well, with that, I'd like to thank each of you for joining us. Deb, it's been a real pleasure as always. And as gr- always, Jonathan. And Margot, wonderful to get a chance to, you know, to talk to you and hopefully we'll all cross paths later in the year. Yes, indeed. Thanks and Scott, of course, it's been a, a great pleasure to have you with us as well. Yeah, lovely to finally do the podcast. Yeah. Cool. And Gary, as always, we will talk together next week. We will talk next week and have another podcast. Not as good as this one, probably. But <laughs> Nowhere near as good as this one. This one was no. the best one we will have all year. <laughs> so with, with the knowledge listeners that you have now heard the best podcast you possibly will hear all year and now don't need to listen to any of the other ones um we'd like to thank you all very much and uh we'll, talk, we'll see you then <laughs>